global warming, war, famine, disease. The problems that face the human race are many, and for some seem insurmountable. According to physicist Stephen Hawking, faced with these problems, the survival of the human race depends on whether we are able to populate other planets. Speaking in Hong Kong, Hawking said, It is important for the human race to spread out into space for the survival of the species. Life on Earth is at the ever-increasing risk of being wiped out by a disaster. Does this represent an effective response to the issues facing the human race, and is it practically feasible in a reasonable timescale? What are the technical challenges that need to be addressed if we are to set out for the nearest habitable planet, or even beyond? I'm joined today by Professor Ian Stewart from Warwick's Department of Mathematics. Professor Stewart has written extensively on science and science fiction, as well as extraterrestrial life. Ian, back in the 60s and 70s, the idea that we would be populating our nearest planetary neighbours seemed to be a certainty. Is this dream still a possibility? It was a big thing in about 19... starting in 1969 with um, Gerard O'Neill, an American, who came up with ideas for space colonies, habitats. And it all kind of worked out, the engineering, where you would put them uh, probably at the point between Earth and Moon where the gravity cancels out, it's a good place to put a habitat, and they could make a living by mining the asteroid belt and sending materials back to Earth, or they could... Uh, just collect solar power and beam it down to Earth. You know, so it was all kind of worked out, and you got the feeling that um, this was not very far away. And look at what we have now. We have a space station in low Earth orbit, which is incredibly expensive, probably not really doing anything terribly useful, and very, very tiny, with <laughs> a few inhabitants. And, and that's it. Um, we can't even get to the moon at the moment. We've retreated from going into space. So it looks like the dream has kind of died as it stands. Now, as that shows, this is not a new idea. The idea of going into space is uh, humanity colonising the planets is something that's been around certainly since the 1920s, uh, possibly even earlier. I think Stephen Hawking is is, um, tapping into a little bit of the feelings of the time that um, the planet is getting overcrowded and we're beginning to be aware of all the nasty problems that could uh, inflict themselves upon us. Not just the ones we're creating ourselves, but ones that are pretty much out of our control. If it's been a common theme then, in certainly in science fiction writing, for the last sort of 80 years, what are the scientifically feasible approaches that have been talked about? I think the, the main feasible approaches are... Firstly, they are artificial habitats of the kind that O'Neill suggests, or the first things people thought of were building artificial human cities on the moon. Hmm. Let's, let's go to the moon. I think there is a lot to be said for the idea that having all of our eggs in one basket is very dangerous. And f- purely from the sort of selfish point of view of the human race in wanting to keep itself going, a planet is not a safe place to live. There are so many different disasters and we're beginning to learn of ones in the distant past that caused incredible amounts of trouble. Everyone knows about the impact that killed the dinosaurs. But there are other things that can get you. There's massive ice ages, there's um, methane bubbling up from the oceans, um, there's enormous deposits of methane hydrate in the oceans and it only needs to warm up a little bit more and that stuff all gets released. So, you know, it is actually mostly benign a planet this planet it's a beautiful place to live most of the time 
and every few hundred million years it uh, produces a really nasty event and kills off most of the life forms around. So, you know, I have sympathy with the idea we should get off the planet, so uh, the moon is the obvious place to go because you can build on it. O'Neill's great realisation was you don't need to build on it, you're out in space, there's very little gravity, why not just float around, maybe that's easier. The one that everybody seems to focus on is terraforming a planet. The idea you can go out and find a nearby planet that's suitable for humans is pretty remote. I mean, we know where the nearby planets are and, and they're not places we would want to live. Mars is by far the best. You could at least get yourself in the right kind of spacesuit and wander around on the surface of Mars. You could do this on some of Jupiter's moons. Uh, you couldn't do it on Venus, it's too hot. You couldn't do it on Mercury, same reason. Uh, Jupiter is a dirty great ball of gas. You'd have to float around in a balloon, but it's also very high radiation environment at Jupiter. You know, and uh, the nearest star is four and a half light years away, and we don't know whether there's any planets there, let alone any planets that would be suitable for us. But the idea is, OK, if the planet isn't quite right, fix it. Uh, terraform it, turn it into a copy of the Earth, so that we don't just live on it in artificial habitats. We can wander around on the surface. You, know, you, can, you can put on your bikini, go out and sunbathe. And there is a series of books, fairly recent series, on terraforming Mars, which is Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, by Kim Stanley Robinson. And he lays down within his fictional story, which is mostly about the politics of uh, of all of this, but he builds in current, fairly fairly good scientific view as to how you really might set about turning Mars into a habitable planet. You've got to get oxygen onto it, you've got to get water onto it, and if you can start to get plants growing there, then they will produce oxygen. So water is the key. Where do you get the water from? There's a lot of water in the form of ice locked away in comets, maybe in the rings of Saturn maybe even some asteroids. Um, so you go grab yourself some floating lumps of ice and you drop them onto the Martian surface. And then you've got water. Then you can start with little greenhouses, if you wish, with plants in them. You can produce oxygen. There's lots of clever things as well, but that's the kind of beginnings of it. None of this stuff, though, is... is um technically easy though is it and I think <laughs> I think one of the things that Hawking said was that um, he said the times could have around 100 years to start seeing this, these kind of things um, uh, happen we can't make Mars habitable in 100 years uh, we could set up a base on Mars in 100 years time I'm sure that's feasible whether it would be self-sustaining is not clear and if it's not the problem is if if it relies upon planet Earth as a source of you know it's uh, raw materials and energy and fancy equipment and other such things. And then if Earth gets clobbered by a comet, then the colony on Mars is stuck on its own devices and probably wouldn't survive. You really need something that's self-sufficient. I mean, I think the O'Neill-style habitats are actually mm. the way to go if you really want to. But I'm not sure we could build one of those in a 100 years. You need to get an awful lot of materials into orbit to start the process. O'Neill's idea was you start mining the asteroid belt and then the materials are already up there. But you need... And then you've got to get the people onto it. So you, you either have a very small colony which you let breed, you have a small gene pool, 
or you take a lot of frozen sperm and eggs and other things and then you need all sorts of equipment for IVF and who knows what um, but maybe that would be better um, or you send a lot of people up there which you can't do sensibly with rockets so you end up thinking about things like the space elevator yes you have a satellite in geosynchronous orbit so it's always hovering over the same point on the earth's surface just like communication satellites do now um, you take very strong material form a cable and let it down and then you can have a kind of elevator going up and you bring raw materials or something down as a counterweight or people coming home again or whatever and it's relatively cheap energetically we don't quite have strong enough materials yet but it's probably true that carbon nanotubes um, all this stuff that came the discovery of Buckminster Fullerene of the carbon molecule with 60 carbon atoms and, and nothing else making a beautiful mathematically pretty cage those can also be made into long tubes and they are very very strong the problem is making them commercially in sufficient quantities but they can actually they, you could in principle probably make a space elevator cable out of such materials if you could control their growth but again, I think you're looking at timescales longer than 100 years to get all this working. I don't really see it as feasible to get off the planet that quickly. Mm. So I think what we should do is defend the planet. We should be looking for the things that are likely to clobber us, such as the obvious one is asteroids, and there are plans for how to send out uh, spacecraft. But what do you do with it when you get there? There was this great idea which probably came from the American military, which is you nuke it. If you nuke an asteroid, what you get is millions of tiny asteroids... <laughs> these things are mostly loose dirt balls and they just come to pieces um, rather nice idea recently is you, you wrap it you, you wrap it in something like aluminium foil um, on one side and paint it dark on the other and you let the light pressure from the sun reflect off the foil and, and divert it slowly carefully but there are lots of problems on earth and our, the way we're floundering around trying to control global warming at the moment doesn't actually um, give one a lot of hope that we can get our act together and protect ourselves against obvious problems, let alone the fancy ones. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the, one of the sort of obvious criticisms of uh, looking at this is that um, the technical capability required to deliver some of these solutions and also just the sheer resource cost of some of these solutions... You know, actually tackling some of these threats at home is probably cheaper and easier than coming up with these kind of esoteric um, solutions that take us out into space. I really, if it comes down to it, you know, the, the science fiction side of me says, yeah, but it would be great to go into space. And I think that's true. It would be a good idea. But the practical point is, if we can't tackle the political problems behind a lot of these uh, disasters, potential disasters, on our own planet with all the resources that we've got down here. If we can't actually succeed in tackling those, then sending a few people off the planet is basically a cop-out. It's just uh, it, it's giving up on the problem, saying, that, you know, we're going to destroy ourselves, let's get a few, uh, few people off before the inevitable happens. No, we've got to do better than that, because all we would do if, 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 that's, the, if that's what it's really like then we'd just be unleashing this kind of plague on the galaxy. Um, if we mess up this planet, then we go and terraform Mars, then we'll mess up Mars. And we'll just spread out and out and out, destroying things as we go. Um, there are some science fiction novels about that, of course. You get the, there are the ones where humanity has built a great galactic empire, and for story reasons it's got problems. 
but there are some very interesting and more thoughtful ones about the way that um, a kind of human interstellar empire might eventually start to collapse um, you know, because it's not really sustainable or would have to do this kind of slash and burn uh, approach and just gobble up planets, destroy them, move on. Um, if something like that was heading our way and it was a bunch of aliens doing it, we wouldn't be very pleased. So I don't think that's a sensible way to go. So I think a lot more effort needs to be put in on thinking about solving problems here. We know, we're pretty sure that there won't be an asteroid crashing into us for the next hundred years or so. And I really think that um, that problem is solvable on the right time scale. If an ice age decides to develop, there's not a lot we can do about it, except probably we should start encouraging people to use their cars more. <laughs> and all the things we're try currently trying to do to stop global warming, you throw into reverse and start trying to um, create global warming. We do have resource limitation problems. Going out and finding materials somewhere like the asteroid belt might be a useful way of getting around these problems. We, have, you know, we, we, we can already see ourselves running out of things like oil and water, for heaven's sake. Yeah, <laughs> um, the big thing that could save us there is if fusion power comes on stream and then we've got plenty of easily available energy for things like just taking salt water from the oceans and getting rid of the salt. But then there's another problem, which um, one of Larry Niven's novels, Moting God's Eye, the civilization there, um, if you have an awful lot of uh, reactors and things going on a very heavily inhabited planet, it generates large amounts of heat and large amounts of pollution, and it's not a very nice place to live purely for that reason. I mean, I personally think that the sensible way forward is to start limiting the population as fast as we can and get the numbers back down. So are we, are we looking at a sort of... Um, I'm thinking about um, Douglas Adams's Golga Frinchen solution where um, we rid ourselves of an entirely useless third of the population. The, so perhaps um, interstellar, interstellar trouble mm, does, have its, does have its value. The mutant star goat scenario. Yes, that's the one. So, that's right. Well, it, well it, it turned out that, it yes, Golga Frinchen B arc, which had all, basically all the people you wanted to get rid of, and they'd all been told slightly different stories about why it was so necessary for them all to, to be in the first of the three ships to leave the planet. And they were always puzzled why the other two didn't come along as well. You said earlier on that there's there's kind of two parts of it, isn't there? There's the side of things that says, actually, you know, we should be concentrating the resources and effort on solving our problems, not trying to escape into space. But you said there's, there's a part of you that sort of says, actually, yeah, damn it, we ought to be doing this stuff. Do you think we've kind of lost the excitement of space travel? And, and if there's a political will to do it, to actually, damn it, this is something we should be doing. An awful lot of people were very disappointed when the Moon programme was not followed up by something more ambitious. NASA went for the space shuttle, low-Earth orbit missions... Um, it went for an extremely complicated and expensive solution to a problem that could have been solved in better ways. And uh, a lot of science fiction fans and others went around chanting, NASA has killed the dream, mm. which basically it had. I don't think that the current proposal from dear President Bush um, to have a mission to Mars is actually credible. I don't believe the Americans are going to go through with that. It sounds like a political gimmick. Um, OK, the moon mission from Kennedy was a bit of a political gimmick, but it, they went through with it. Mm. They did it. Um, you can query the value of it, uh, but if you think that we really should be making some effort to 
explore the solar system, get off the planet, get out into space, get a much broader base for our activities, then you've got to go to the moon. And in the long run, it pays off. And even if it costs billions and billions of dollars to make a rocket to go to the moon, you don't spend the billions of dollars on the moon. You spend them on Earth. So actually, people get a lot of benefit from... There's a lot of spin-off from things like the space programme. And it's all very well saying, oh, but if that money was spent on curing disease or something. Um, but it's not quite as simple as that. that. That money goes to particular industries, some of which may actually be involved in producing equipment for curing diseases as well. Uh, you know, m- money is a thing that circulates. It's not simply something you spend and it's gone. Hmm. So I think we, we need to lighten up a bit on the economic side and decide, you know, some of these things are, are worth doing in order to give us new frontiers. We're running out of frontiers hundred years ago, you could go and explore parts of the world that nobody had ever been to before. Now, if you climb Mount Everest, you'll find another hundred people trying to go up at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's almost impossible to get anywhere on the planet uh, without bumping into somebody. The frontiers have, have gone. We've explored them all. There's a few. Mm. We, there's the deep oceans. But there is so much out there in space, and it's all so interesting. I mean, it's, whenever one of these space probes goes off to to Mars or Saturn or... Jupiter or whatever, everyone wakes up and says, wow, look at that. I don't know, some people are not um, particularly bothered by it, but you get photographs back of Saturn's rings from Cassini and you see the amazing structures in them and all of this stuff and you think, wouldn't it be nice to actually get out there? (laughs) Couldn't we go and see this? It won't happen to me. I I suppose it's difficult though, isn't it, that in our kind of society which craves ever, ever shorter hits of information, shorter entertainment, our attention span is is, rap- is famously rapidly decreasing. That, um, you know, these programmes that it's going to take sort of 30 or 40 years to get a man to Saturn or to, um, you know, when even the very notion of, of kind of breaking the edge of our solar system and exploring uh, the planetary systems of other uh, stellar bodies is an incredible... The timescales are mind-boggling, aren't they? Yes, I mean, it, it used... I mean, it, it wasn't so long ago that building a cathedral might take 200 years and the the people of four or 500 years ago managed to do this. They managed to keep these projects, despite massive political turmoil. Um, if you look at what the ancient Egyptians accomplished over 3,000 years of fairly continuous civilization, there's a lot of continuity, a lot of stagnation, actually, because they, they do the same thing the same way for, for an enormous periods of time and a few bursts of um, invasions from outside or other things. But, uh, you know, it is possible to manage long-term projects, but I think we're losing the art of doing it because we are focused on shorter and shorter timescales. I suppose there's been some discussion recently about... um, I know Richard Branson has got involved in this notion of, uh, you know, taking Virgin Air into space. Um, Should we be looking at the private sector to sort of take the lead now on, on the on this area. But if we do, aren't we running the risk that um, it becomes the preserve of the sort of moneyed elites rather than being uh, something that we all can enjoy? Well, this is another science fiction theme. It tends to be one of the standard nostrums of the age, that if central government can't deliver something, then you farm it out to private enterprise, which is, of course, much more efficient and much more imaginative and delivers... And one of the problems with that argument is, to some extent, it's true. A lot of government projects fail, and they fail for lack of imagination or lack of money or just lack of enterprise, and the private sector can deliver. 
The private sector also does this by writing off enormous amounts of investors' money. It doesn't do it efficiently, it doesn't do it cheaply, but it does it, which is often much more important. There are now prizes in the States for various privately funded um, spacecraft to be uh, invented and developed. And there are companies doing this, and they are delivering the goods in many ways. So I think throwing it open to free enterprises is actually quite a good idea. Like all such things, it needs to be controlled, and it isn't always possible to do that. Is it something to do with risk? I mean, are, you know, governments, are, I suppose, are uh, loath to take on huge risks these days, and space travel is, a, is a, I guess, a risky business, not just in terms of technically, but I suppose if we're pushing the boundaries of our solar system, the kind of, you know, if we sort of suddenly uh, open ourselves up to some marauding stargoat or... Uh, thinking of the you know the the uh, the classic kind of um, predator alien type of <laughs> type of scenario. I mean, these are these are kind of risky businesses, aren't they? I think for some reason, uh, I sort of understand where it's come from, but governments have got very very nervous about spending public money unless there is a guaranteed return. Will we get value for money? They say, and then they fiddle around with uh, fifty million pounds worth of cash on some project and thousands of jobs go because they're not willing to spend it or whatever and you think 50 million that's less than a pound per person in the country you know if someone came banging on the door and said you know would you contribute a pound to uh, you know to to, to keep um, Peugeot factory going or whatever you might or might not agree but you wouldn't be too bothered whether you contributed the pound or not but a government spending the same kind of money is paranoid about perhaps it will be wasted. I mean, really, it should be the other way around. It's private money you worry about wasting, because if you waste private money, people actually notice. Somebody takes a £1,000 of my money and throws it away, I will notice that it's gone. If a 1,000 of us have a pound thrown away, we don't care. So governments should... Public money should be something that's expendable. Yes, you want... You know, you want to show some sort of overall... um, advantage from spending it but spending some of it speculatively surely has to be the right way to go i mean i think if you actually do the sums on various of these enormous projects which terribly terribly wasteful and everyone is 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 upset because they're going to spend 30 billion dollars doing this that and the other and then you say well now how much will the american families spend on ice cream over the next 10 years and it's far more no so maybe if we all had an ice cream less every week. We could go to Mars. We could go to Mars, yeah. Ian, thank you very much. You're welcome.